Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 17th of August, as we record. Inflation may be falling, but bond yields are still on the rise. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is at its highest level since 2007, and it's a similar story for gilt yields. We are starting today, then, by looking at a sector that's typically deemed to struggle at such times, but for whom business is nonetheless booming in certain areas, and that's the insurers. After that, we are going to take a look at the companies whose weight loss drugs have had a dramatic impact on top lines and waistlines this year and ask if that momentum can continue. Finally, our cover story this week looks at survivor shares, companies that have withstood the test of time and which are still flourishing. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line, Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. Always a pleasure. Likewise, Julian. And in the studio, Jennifer Johnson. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. Insurers then. We'll begin with them. Uh, Julian, you covered the two results that we're going to talk about in particular, Aviva and Legal in general. What did you make of them? Yeah, it was a bit of a mixed bag, really. But um, a lot of the issues uh, had been flagged up before because they're changing over their accounting to uh, IFRS 1.7, which meant that Legal in general in particular saw Five billion of shareholder equity just disappear. Um, yeah, it, it, it was. It didn't make for easily compa- easy comparisons. But um, what was interesting about the the results was how, uh, in relative terms, the insurers who were more like pure insurers uh, were doing a lot better than um, insurers who seem to have other business lines. So, legal in general is a gigantic uh, fund manager as well as um, uh, you know, a full-line uh, life insurer. And the fund management side, uh, as you'd expect really over the last 18 months, hasn't been doing very well. And uh, that was what dragged down the results. And uh, their shares got marked down because the, the company didn't sort of compensate for that by giving back another chunk of capital. But I guess the, the issue really is whether, because they've changed their accounting, there isn't the the same level of capital to give away so it was a little bit of a a little bit of a mixed bag but Aviva seems to be doing a lot better um they've come to the end of their payout cycle so they've paid out more or less all the money that they earned from downsizing the business in various parts of the world uh but their their core business is doing quite well and it's partly i think because they are more focused as an insurance company but they're also able to raise rates in a certain direction, which uh, at the moment is only up. Uh, so if you're, re- if you're reinsuring your house this uh, this summer or your car, you can expect to pay up to 20% more, uh, depending on uh, on which brand you go for. And uh, we could also add Admiral to that. Admiral came out uh, on uh, Thursday, and uh, sorry, on Wednesday, and uh, they're pointing towards really quite high rates of, of price growth. So uh, everyone liked the the sound of that. So Admiral and even other insurers like Direct Line, which is a perennial dog share, um, uh, went up quite substantially. So it, it's been it, it I think broadly positive, but it depended very much on what you were you were doing as a company. That that, that was generally the impression I got. I'm glad you said perennial dog share there because I was uh, worrying for a minute what you were going to describe uh, them as. Uh, yeah, there are there were lots of insurer results this week as you as you've touched on and. And lots of different business lines being affected in different ways. I suppose to go back to what I said at the top, 
you know, insurers typically in some ways are seen as, you know, very interest rate sensitive. So that probably didn't help them this week, given, you know, we saw strong wage figures and therefore bond yields marked up in the UK, which probably didn't help the insurers either. But there is one aspect of their business, certainly for LNG and Aviva as well, that is really being helped by higher interest rates. And that is, you know, the bulk annuity side, the the ability to um, buy out pension schemes that are now fully funded thanks to those higher interest rates as well. Yes, that's definitely a, an emerging. Well, actually, it's been a story for the last six months or so because people have been pricing in the possibility that that would be happening. But uh, the, the results actually showed that you know the feast has been laid for uh, for bulk insurers. Uh, basically, what it means is that the higher interest rates have put a lot of company pension schemes into surplus, uh, whereas the last decade decade or more. Um, so defined benefit schemes in particular have suffered from uh, you know, a lack of uh, bond yield, which has affected uh, you know, their liquidity. And uh, this situation is now rapidly reversing. So uh, anyone who goes long on long-dated gilts is getting quite good uh, yields on those, quite good returns. So obviously a, a pension fund with long-dated uh, liabilities can now match uh yields that will cover those liabilities so the the schemes are now in, in profit and uh, that's encouraging the trustees to consider to uh, moving all of those liabilities over to the um uh the life insurance uh, industry who then essentially manage them and uh will do their own sort of um asset matching as well to manage to, to pay off on those liabilities. So it's be, it, it is very profitable. I mean, it's, it's something that that generates a lot of fees for for the likes of Legal and General and, uh, and others. And uh, we're going to see that continue as long as rates are, are reasonable. I mean, they don't, they don't have to be, you know, mega high. It just has to be sort of towards the long-term average. And that helps uh, that side of the business considerably. Yeah, uh, as you say, the the bulk annuity side of things has been going for for a little bit longer, and it, and is, you know, a kind of a trend which is was preceded the rise in rates almost as well. But you know, how much longer can this continue? You know, insurers need to hold more capital to deal with these liabilities they take on, and and things have been going, you know, gangbusters for some time now. It seems are there are there limits in terms of you know how much business is out there for them to do, or how much they can afford to take on? You know, or will this just continue? Legal and general records that can take on roughly twelve billion pounds a year of liabilities like this, so they can write twelve pounds, twelve billion pounds of of business related to bulk annuities annually, and the market is worth in total something like fifty two billion. So, I mean, that gives you a runway of I don't know, maybe five years, four years, where where there's a a window for maturing schemes to uh, to be bought up essentially by by pension funds. Um, as you say, obviously there are capital requirements that they have to meet, but uh, the solvency ratio is one byproduct of of higher interest rates. Is that the insurer's solvency ratios are improving as well because their own assets that they hold are they're also yielding uh, better. Um, and some insurers are you know are just they're switching over to just a long dated gilts. Uh, you know, as a way of hedging that, or at least a way of taking advantage of, of that higher rate, and uh, you know, they could, they can, they can forecast that uh, so for quite a few years in the future. But yes, I mean, I, I would say, 
you know, you're going to see probably four years of, of growth in that area. And then they might start asking questions about whether there's enough business left after that. Alex, I'll just bring you in here, maybe some thoughts on the insurers in general, because they have that kind of tailwind, but, you know, they have various headwinds as well. And, you know, they have been marked down a bit this year as rates have continued to rise by by the market. What's your kind of take on the state of these businesses? Yeah, just to add to that previous point as well, the, I mean, I was looking at one of the um, one of the estimates by one of the, the, the pensions consultants this year who think there's, there's maybe about a trillion pounds of liabilities still to be done. So, I, it looks. I mean, five five years of growth. I think, as Julian was saying, is probably a, a, quite a sensible um, uh, horizon. There's. I mean, it looks like they're kind of falling over themselves to write this new business, and there's probably capacity constraints within the market a little bit. Um, but you know, as you get closer to 2030, um, you're getting a, a large proportion of the the DB pension scheme universe funded, and um, you know, there's probably questions about what the bid, the next big boom business is. Um, after that, um, I mean, I, the the thing that stands out to me about this is it's unusual within the financial services industry to have, you know, this is like a genuine boom market, the pension risk transfer um, market, uh, and uh, and yet the shares um, kind of reflect extreme nervousness and hesitancy on the part of um, on the part of investors. In the case of Aviva. I mean, the story, I suppose, is, is arguably a little more diversified because they've got the general insurance business um, uh, and, and sort of exposure to other lines. The asset management businesses for both legal and general and Aviva, if we're comparing them side by side, are um, pretty mixed, like the rest of the UK asset management industry. So quite a, a fall in asset assets under management this, um, this half, uh, which is not a great trend. Um, but why, you know, as to why uh, investors appear to be discounting these these businesses um, that where where there really is a motor, you know, sort of growth engine in there, um, I, I, it's it's a little hard to say. I suppose I suppose one of the things to consider is, you know, these are enormous companies with huge hidden risks, and you know, if you try and look through the accounts, there's quite a lot of opacity there. Understanding exactly all the moving parts is a tricky thing to do at the best of times. But when you've got such, you know, big risks coming from inflation, interest rates, and, you know, things like life expectancy, I think those maybe amount to fat tail risks. And, you know, as last year's blow up in the bond market showed, um, things can rear their heads in very ugly ways and very unpredictable ways. And we're still living through a difficult period for rising rates, um, uh, and you know that there, there could be you know sort of gremlins in in the machine, and maybe you know in this in this boom market as well. Long term, there are hidden concerns that when you know the the industry is maybe overlooking um, because it's such a boom market. So that perhaps explains the hesitancy. If you're, you're going to be a, a bull for the shares, you'd say that LNG is now making a billion pounds in operating profit. Um, uh, just just from the uh, pension risk transfer business, that's near enough covering the dividend. So you get a lot thrown in for free. Um, I think it's just these like these hidden risks that um, that explains the the, the market pessimism. Um, which uh, I don't know. It depends depends on your sort of uh, your your take. If you're an income investor, you might be happy to just sit and collect the dividend and take a long term uh, approach to any sort of bumps in the road. Yeah, those dividend yields are, you know, in excess of eight percent now as well, aren't they? So still pretty, uh, pretty healthy, even relative to the risk-free rate. Uh, why don't we 
conclude with a couple more bits on you know some of the uh, general insurance, personal insurance lines, uh, which have attracted some headlines. Uh, Aviva every quarter, every you know half year seems to get uh, you know general newspaper interest now for talking about its private health business, which perhaps understandably is doing really well at the moment. A lot of people you know looking to. Uh, try and insulate themselves from the risk of, you know, NHS uh, waiting times by seemingly taking on private insurance. Nonetheless, Julian, it seems it's still a relatively small part of their business, despite growing pretty quickly, that health and protection side. Yeah, it's, it's not going... I mean, the, the interesting thing is that the general trend for um, health insurance in the UK is, has been down for, for quite a few years, like 20 years. Mm. Um so whatever they're doing in new business is is a blip rather than a a sign of a fundamental shift. I would say, um, I mean, partly it's because the people who can afford um, health insurance are unlikely to use it <laughs> in a mm. funny sort of way. Uh, you know, it's people in their thirties or forties. Uh, if you're if you're older than that, you already tend to be in the NHS system, um, and and it has just it's just fallen. If you look at it as a proportion of the total insurance business, it's, it's almost, it is pretty negligible, really. I, I think it's individually profitable, which is why um, uh, it attracts attention. But it also, it, it attracts attention because people tend to comment on it as a, a sort of substitute for people for using the health service because the health service in some way is useless. I mean, that's the, tends to be the general angle on it. Um, but for, for a company like Aviva, it's, it's not really that material in terms of, the, the overall results. I mean, their their motor and general insurance is far more uh, far more uh, important and uh, profitable, really, on a on a like for like basis. And on the subject of motor insurance, I mean, this is something that is certainly hitting pockets at the moment. You know, when you look at the uh, figures from Aviva and Amaral, as you mentioned before, talking about you know rises of twenty percent plus year on year. Amaral in particular, isn't it? Yes, and. The, the the company obviously the biggest motor insurer in the UK so obviously what it says is hugely material for the rest of the market uh, which is why direct line has been benefiting as well but uh, they they're actually posting a rate increase of 23% on average for their motor policies and uh, i mean you can understand why i mean I, my car service the other day cost 1200 pounds which was double the year before and uh, they're, they're so they've been suffering a lot from um, you know claims inflation in terms of uh, you know buying spare parts buying new cars buying second-hand cars uh, within the system for at least uh, 18 months and uh, this is the net result of that but uh, the market like the fact that they could they quite clearly have the pricing power to do that uh, and absorb then the shock of inflation on the way so um, that's why that's why the shares went up quite so much, like seven or seven, nearly eight percent on the day. Yeah, I think they they've shed some customers, but you know the the ones they've kept are the ones able to pay those rates uh, clearly, self evidently. So you know that is helping profitability as well. Uh, we'll leave insurers for now, and we will turn to the entirely different subject of weight loss drugs, which. You know, AI has been the big market story this year, but in some ways this has been uh, uh, the second biggest, uh, no pun intended, uh, because these uh, companies, uh, Jen, Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, have really, you know, capitalized on these these new drugs, which, well, we'll get to uh, the ins and outs in a minute, but they do seem to, you know, work pretty well and, and sales are soaring as a result. Yeah, and I guess it's particularly impressive for Eli Lilly's drug, um, Munjaro. Sales hit 
nearly a billion dollars in the second quarter. Uh, and the reason that's impressive is that it actually hasn't been approved by the FDA in uh, obesity yet. So both these drugs, um, they're called GLP-1s as a, as a class, are actually approved as type 2 diabetes drugs uh, and have been on the market for a couple of years, uh, are known to be very effective there. But yeah, there's Eli Lilly is still um, is still waiting on an on an approval in in this um, for obesity. Uh, so it's clearly these drugs are already being prescribed. What's known as off label by doctors, um, meaning they uh, you know this is not the the desired indication. But this is a real reflection of the level of demand. Uh, Eli Lilly recently raised its annual revenue guidance by two billion or so. Meanwhile, sales of Nova Nordisk's drug, Wigovi, jumped 365% in the first half. We also have to consider the fact, when we're looking at sales, current sales, uh, that both of these companies have been dealing with supply constraints for these drugs. So these sorts of revenue figures are potentially the, the sort of tip of the iceberg, which is why I think uh, you know investors and, and markets are, are excited about the potential. And the most recent development, which plays to what you were just talking about, about varying different usages and possible uses for them, uh, was suggestion, you know, from uh, some data readouts suggesting that heart disease could also be, uh, you know, rates could be severely affected by these drugs. They could really help with that as well. That gave shares another lift the other week. Again, mm. it's very early stage, but people are getting excited about potential applications in all kinds of areas. Yeah, so it isn't entirely clear yet. I think this is one thing to know about uh, this this heart disease data, whether these weight loss drugs have cardiovascular benefits purely because they reduce weight, or whether there's some sort of other benefit that's that's not yet understood or kind of fully appreciated. If it's shown that these drugs have, def- you know, really defined benefits beyond weight loss it makes it more likely that health systems will subsidise them. So the more or the wider the range of benefits that these drugs can can be shown to offer patients, the better sales are going to be. So both, uh, it was the study uh, that we were referencing, that the data that came out last week was on Wigovi, which is Nova Nordisk's drug. Uh, but Eli Lilly's shares also saw a significant bump off of the back of that. And this is just really excitement about... Um, you know, insurance companies might pay for these things. Various state health systems might help to subsidise these drugs. So it just means that the potential, you know, peak sales are, are even higher than we might have thought. Yeah, these drugs are, you know, the US is the main market, as tends to be the case with, mm. uh, you know, most of these uh, breakthrough things right now. Uh, I don't think they're... What, what is the state of uh, play in the UK, other than a healthy black market in these drugs, perhaps? Uh, I think the healthy black market surely exists. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, it, I believe that the NHS has approved these drugs for use in certain patients, but as is always the case um, with the NHS, it's really kind of uh, restricted by funding. So, and therefore restricted to to the people who sort of need these drugs the most or could benefit from these drugs the most. So, while in the US, you might see people uh, who are primarily looking for a, you know, Wigovi prescription uh, for aesthetic purposes in the UK will be kind of reserved for, for people who are suffering the health consequences of obesity. At the moment, um, you know, it's I'm sure it's a very much a live issue with within, um, yeah, within the NHS. 
the needless to say, the the price tag on these drugs as well is a. Uh, pretty high so it's not just a, a volume game you know just selling a few of these things could mm. reap a lot of money for the providers yeah absolutely and but it's you know it's this is why the likes of Eli Lilly and, and Nova Nordisk are so keen to prove that these drugs you know it's not just um it's not just that you're going to lose weight you're you know you're less likely to have a stroke you're you know less likely to have severe heart disease potentially I, i'd seen something even that it could have um impact on chronic kidney disease um you know these the more uses for these drugs uh the the more likely it is that despite the price tags uh governments and insurance companies are still uh, going to pay up because the societal benefit and the benefit, uh, you know, over the lifetime of, of a patient is potentially significant. I suppose the bear case, if you want to describe it that way, could be broken down into three related issues, which are supply chains that you mm. mentioned before. Uh, the fact that, you know, if you're an investor, valuations have already, you know, way up with this news, very much like the AI kind of story in some cases, mm. but also the potential side effects of these drugs, which again, you know, it's very early stage. People aren't quite sure yet how significant they may be, but they could be significant. Yeah. And I guess the the unknown factor here is you've got people now who, you know, say that the average person who had taken one of these drugs, a GLP-1, is someone with type 2 diabetes who's likely to be, you know, middle-aged or older. We don't really have a lot of data on what happens when people in their 20s and 30s potentially take these drugs for decades. Um, so that kind of unknown at a population level does, you know, there, there could potentially be side effects. It was just uh, earlier this week, I think, that uh, we discovered that because these drugs um, sort of slow down your digestive system, there's a potential complication for people taking these drugs when they go under anesthesia. Um, you know, obviously, when you when you have an operation, your stomach has to be entirely empty. So there is a potential complication there. Um and we just, yeah, there's there's a lot of unknowns. This is not to suggest that these drugs are somehow unsafe. It's just that when you have this many people taking a drug, there are bound to be a handful of perhaps unexpected consequences. If we think about how markets reacted to the news of that very rare AstraZeneca COVID jab side effect, um, it's a kind of, in pharmaceuticals, you have to think of it as a, a higher they climb, the harder they fall situation. So even if a side effect is very rare or you know highly unlikely to happen or only likely to happen in a very small subset of people using these drugs that could still have an impact on sales and on share prices and it's because this level of hype you know these are really being touted as, as miracle drugs at the moment that are going to you know not just reshape the pharmaceutical industry they could you know reshape whole sectors of the economy if you believe the the most kind of bullish commentators on on these matters um but much much depends on what actually happens to, to people in the next couple of years on these drugs? If things do go well, I mean, the potential consequences, the ripple effects could continue throughout a range of sectors. I'm basing this partly on one Morgan Stanley graph that I've seen, but nonetheless, <laughs> it, it kind of shows the, the effect uh, uh, that these things have. You know, they don't just help you lose weight, they change your appetite. Mm. You know, the, these these figures are really, you know, quite significant in terms of the, the decreased interest in, as you'd expect, kind of sugary baked goods, things like that, and the increased interest in eating fruit and vegetables. I don't think it's about taste, but I think it's just about you know, impulse and, and things like that. So, mm. you know, that could have effects for, you know, all kinds of uh, food manufacturers, consumer staples, things like that too, which 
very hard to gauge at this stage, but could be significant across society, really. Yeah, that's at least that's what people are saying at the moment. Is that um, you know, if you're a if you're a company that makes snack foods, or if you're just a, a food manufacturer in the US in general, if at a population level, say, you know, I think that the forecast was, you know, say seven percent of the population is taking these drugs in the US, that, and you know, their appetites are reduced by up to a third, or um, I don't exactly know the the number on the appetite reduction, but if you have a significant appetite reduction at a population level, then it is, for, you know, it's foreseeable that this could impact sales of, of certain food products. Um, perhaps on the more sort of realistic side, um, a couple of other analysts have noted that um, this these drugs could be bad for med tech companies that make diabetes devices or CPAP machines for sleep apnea if there are fewer overweight adults. Um, but I would kind of urge some some caution here. I think we're still going to need effective treatments for type 1 diabetes. People will still have sleep apnea. Perhaps the size of the, those markets will indeed be reduced by these drugs. But, you know, we're not going to see, uh, you know, sales of, of you know, potato chips drop to nothing in the US, um, more or less, overnight. And, you know, people will still have conditions that are, that are linked to obesity. There might be, uh, you know, people who don't want to take these drugs, especially if, if side effects, um, information about side effects emerges. So it's the the potential here is clearly very exciting. And I, as you did mention, Dan, there's, there's, I think, kind of a school of thought that says these drugs don't just reduce your appetite, they actually reduce your cravings, reduce impulsive behaviours. So, you know, are there, is there a potential use in, in you know, treating certain addictions? Uh, we just don't fully know or have data on that yet. So from an investor's point of view, I think if, you know, if you're looking at these companies at the moment, a lot of these benefits are priced in. Lily's on 47 times forward earnings. Nova Nordisk is slightly cheaper at 31 times forward earnings. That is because, of course, Eli Lilly also potentially has one of these blockbuster drugs for Alzheimer's. Nova Nordisk really is a diabetes drug company, first and foremost. So it's, um, you know, it's perhaps now is not the the opportune moment uh given that these shares have, have shot up as they have. But there's clearly a long-term growth story here. I just, just add on that, I mean, from I think it's, it's, re- it's really, really hard from an investor's perspective at the moment to make the, you know, back the winning horse in this, because I think Pfizer as well as also developing its own um, uh, weight loss or, or appetite suppressing drug. And um, how this all plays out is going gonna to be very hard to, well, it's, very, it's impossible to tell right now. But what they, I mean, what partly explains these huge multiples, I would argue, is there's, there's two things which um, get pe- investors really excited. One is the 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 intangibles. So the, it's it's hard just to launch an, a new competing product overnight. You've got to go through, you know, you know, this is just the nature of the pharma business, isn't it? You've got to do put up huge um, capital for research and development, and then you've got to kind of moat protecting the the drug itself and then the second one which i think is, is is arguably more powerful this kind of pharmaceutical than um than others is the kind of network effect so when you you know your neighbor or your friend has taken wigovi and it's worked miracle miracles for them then there's mm-hmm. this this kind of this, this kind of ripple effect that it could potentially have in in encouraging prescription or or consumer consumer style interest in a drug 
um, which possibly explains why there's just this this real fevered appetite for the um, you know for the shares, if not food going forward and uh, US <laughs> food sales falling. Morgan Stanley says that's amazing. Yeah, well, uh, there are barriers to entry here as well, but equally there is a bit of an arms race here going on too, aren't there? I think you know there are pills as well as injections coming to the market, and Pfizer is one of those trying to develop them too. So there could still be other winners, but uh, yeah, it's a a story that's going to play out over the the weeks and months and years rather than anything in the immediate term. However, our final section is very much on the long term. It's on our cover story this week, which is on survivor shares, companies that have withstood the test of time, companies that are still doing well today, which may have been doing pretty well 100 years ago. Julian, we will uh, bring you back in because you wrote this piece. Uh, yeah, as someone who has withstood the test of time, uh, I thought it was appropriate. To you were, yeah, at the, um, at the coalface. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the piece I looked at, um, I, I kind of got interested in this really from reading bits on how family companies tend to be more profitable. And mm. uh, it got me thinking about how, you know, what does, what, how does a company do well? How does it thrive? What makes it durable? over many years and uh and it was it was quite a fascinating rabbit hole because you, you tend to go once you get into it you actually see that there are lots of variations in how how this actually works as a as a concept um so you tend to find companies that can endure difficult circumstances but they fundamentally don't have a business case that supports them in the long term or you know they're, they're just sucking up capital for no reason uh, and then you find other examples of companies where uh, there is a family somewhere in the background that holds a controlling share, but they barely take any interest in what they're doing, um, and yet the company is still successful. So it was the piece was an attempt, really, to to sift out what makes uh, for a, a durable and uh, interesting corporate story that, that translates into a, into stock market success in the long term. Uh, really, that was the the aim of it and uh, yeah I mean he came up with some interesting uh, with some interesting stories but um, you know it, it is a very difficult topic to define accurately I think because you end up you end up sort of trying to find uh, you know you can't really equate to long longevity with quality I think that's um, that's one uh, trap that you could fall into as an investor I means just because something's been around a long time doesn't mean that it's any good um, so yeah. you, you really have to align uh, looking at how long something lasts with actually how well it's run. I mean, that's uh, that, that tends to be a, um, a common denominator in in long term successful companies. But um, yeah, and it, there's no there's no rhyme or reason to it other than they perhaps have a culture that that breeds um, you know excellence in what they do, and and that sort of self perpetuates. Whereas you know another company that struggles tends to have the same same problems over over many decades so it's uh you know it's it's it is an interesting topic and um uh, i hope investors will find something useful in it well one of you know the the tensions that you explore in the piece is in in some ways you know capitalism by its nature is about creative destruction and it is about you know the new replacing the old and the question is whether you know companies can do that internally in some cases really i mean there are cases of companies that have existed for you know hundreds of years or certainly decades uh which are now entirely different to what they were 100 years ago when they first started out. Well, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because the, there are some that, that are so good at what they do that they, they last literally centuries. So, 
they're the oldest company in the world is a Japanese construction company that started out in the sixth century AD. Uh, and it's still a Japanese construction company that, uh, you know, can come around and do your bathroom. Uh, but it, you know, it was set up, you know, 1500 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that is the flip side. There are some which, uh, have stayed, uh, on the same track this entire time. Exactly. But then there, there are the others who, who kind of evolve themselves to match the circumstances in which they find themselves. I mean, a classic example, and, and obviously it's quite a boring one in some ways, but is, is Berkshire Hathaway, because you see that starts out as a clothing company with roots in the 1830s, in 1830s Rhode Island. And uh, someone called Warren Buffett took it over and made it a holding company for lots of investments. So that's that's an example of longevity being driven by an, an understanding that the core offering isn't working anymore and that you have to do something completely different um but yeah there are others who build on um the success of their founder's vision as it were you know, so if you take a a big chemical company like dupont for example i mean uh, yeah, that was founded on the an understanding that the local product wasn't particularly good in that case it was gunpowder and uh, they've just added intellectual property over many decades. And, uh, you know, they've filed something like 35,000 pat patents a decade. So, I mean, that's a, a, you know, a stunning um, record of, of excellence coming through and, and the constant need to innovate and bring something new to the market all the time. And, and that's, that sort of helps you stay, stay ahead of the destruction curve when you're talking about creative destruction in, uh, in within the, the mechanism of capital, capitalism. Uh, so there, that was an, uh, another uh, another aspect of it, which was quite quite interesting that the that um, change either you 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 know that change is either forced upon you because of circumstances or you you, you companies take the conscious decision to, to 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 change their offering and that may become more successful and thrive um and, and it's it tends to be the ones who are stuck in a particular rut that that you know would you would say wouldn't survive longer than the vision of their founder so yeah it was it was quite an interesting way of looking at it i think as, as you say it was interesting to the way you characterize it is, you know, some companies having change thrust upon them because there are examples of companies who, you know, have effectively collapsed and come back. I believe my limited knowledge of the subject that Congo Gumi was one of those a few years ago, but Rolls-Royce, another example, you know, obviously famously in the 70s, you know, it uh, uh, reinvented itself or was forced to reinvent itself or move away from uh, some of its original areas, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it was, it was a, like it was a full service engine mm, maker, wasn't yeah. it, at one point? And, uh, uh, you know, they, they also made the cars as well as the the engines for the cars, and uh, that um, that bust um, episode when they were bust in 1972, and had to be rescued then by the government was the catalyst for building a much more valuable company. So, uh, you know, their 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 intellectual property lead in aircraft engines is considerable. Um, you know, Rolls Royce engines are famously more powerful and lighter and smaller than the equivalents you get in America uh, or Europe, for example. Uh, and that shows, a, a, you know, consistent in a, you know, the need to be innovative and uh, you know, concentrate on what they do well. And, and that's how they've succeeded. And that's probably how they've 
in partly had the reputation to pull through the last three through uh, the last few years i mean they they managed to get away quite a difficult funding round uh, in the middle of the pandemic which guaranteed that they had the cash to survive and and you can only really do that on the back of reputation i don't think that's 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 uh, that's an intangible uh, there's an intangible quality to uh, to to survival in that sense uh, you know if people trust that your core your core business is worth saving then they'll put up the cash to save it yeah and we're really seeing the the benefits of that in that well shareholders are in the past six months finally with the the big turnaround in the share price there uh as i say that is the cover feature this week you know we look at businesses like that going through thick and thin we look at you know some of the the survivors in a different way as well who who just keep chugging away each year so there should be something for everyone in that feature unfortunately we've run out of time today though so thank you to julian Thank you to Jen, thank you to Alex, and thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.